Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Sociologists are always curious about why people do what they do. It's the reason we study it. Those of you who are social majors, you know that. You're just curious people. And I'm curious about what would possess someone to think it's okay to kill a child in the womb. I have never understood it. And so I guess that's my quest, to try to figure that out. And so that's what I do. I do research and writing about why people do this. I mean, why not only do this, but celebrate it? This week on TV, I happened to turn on the news, and there was Katie Couric touring an abortion facility, smiling and talking about how welcoming the staff were to her and how bright and airy and clean the abortion facility was. <laughs> I'm like, what planet is she from? How could anybody celebrate an abortion facility? But there's been a real push to make us realize how wonderful abortion is in the media. And that has, that's the outgrowth of what we learned about how awful abortion is and how awful abortion providers are in that stem cell um, sale, you know, the organ harvesting that's been going on at Planned Parenthood. So now they're trying this media blitz to convince us that abortion is such a good thing and we need to celebrate it. So you have celebrity people coming out with I had abortion stories. Cecile Richards talked about her abortion and how grateful she was for having an abortion. So that's what I do. I study those kind of people. I'm interested in them, um, sometimes not in such a charitable way. <laughs> so I have to be careful with my research because I can get angry and cynical. But I try to stay away from that, and I think it's the only thing that the writing keeps me from getting too angry because I'm able to get it out on paper. I admire those of you who go to abortion facilities and pray because you're really saving babies. But I justify not always going to those places because I find it so incredibly difficult um, by writing and thinking that maybe I could be making a small contribution to change that culture that is contributing to this culture of death we're in the middle of. So I write articles in four major areas. Number one, I like to study the politics of abortion, who supports it from the political world, um, how judges rule uh, because they're swayed by politics. And our next speaker is an attorney, so he knows a lot more about that, um, the Supreme Court, but I know that judges are very much swayed by politics. So that's the first area I look at. The second area is I look at the demographics of abortion. Um, the percentages, I, look, I get the Guttmacher data every year and look at who's having abortion. And unfortunately, it's black and Hispanic women that are having the abortions. Um, the third area I look at is um, the history of abortion. I'm interested in how we got here, um, and you'll find that it's 100 years ago, sadly. And the final area I look at is 
the economics of abortion. I'm interested in who is benefiting, who is making all the money from abortion. So the first area, we'll spend a few minutes on the politics, because that's the most fascinating, and that's the one that we can make the biggest changes in by changing our lawmakers, if we would just be willing to vote pro-life. You know, the bumper sticker's right. We have that opportunity. And if we know the voting record, um, we know who to vote for. Doesn't matter what party it is, although the party of the Democrats, unfortunately, has been very much the party of death, sadly. Um, many, at the national level, it's almost impossible to find a pro-life Democratic senator or representative. There are a few, but not so many. And so I've been interested in how the party of the New Deal, the party of the, you know, the worker, the party that I grew up with, my whole family was Democrat. I never voted for a Republican until I was an adult, much older. Um, my husband was a Republican, and when I first met him 40 years ago, uh, my parents were concerned because he was a Republican. They said, <laughs> they thought it was okay he was Catholic, but he's a Republican. And I really didn't have any interest in Democrat or Republican. I didn't really know the difference. I was kind of ignorant at 19, and I just fell in love with him, and then eventually moved to the Republican Party. But then I realized, I'm so glad I left that party because it was all about abortion. It was becoming all about abortion. And I found that very sad. And they sway so many of us, you know, that. Young people who want to be liberal, or at least progressive, tend to move to that party, and they're surrounded by a pro-choice message. But the sad thing is, that didn't happen until the 1960s. Almost all of the Democratic big guys that you know of today, <clears throat> including Bill Clinton, they were all pro-life. Bill Clinton was pro-life. Ted Kennedy was pro-life. Al Gore was pro-life. Some of the big guys in the party Jesse Jackson was pro-life. In fact, my book here, I wrote a book called The Politics of Abortion, which identifies who used to be um, pro-life. And it's shocking to look at um, the list. And the Catholic Church, sadly, had something to do with some of these pro-life people becoming pro-choice. And I looked closely at the Kennedy family. In 1964, the Kennedys were all very much pro-life. They were a strong Catholic family. And then all of a sudden, the country started moving toward abortion. And Bobby Kennedy was going was to run for a Senate seat in New York. And New York was beginning to embrace abortion. Not because it was good for women. The people who were promoting abortion had no interest in helping women. Larry Later and Bernard Nathanson, they were all about money. And there was a lot of money to be made in those days. So in order to run for office, they were convincing men and women that the best thing they could do would be to be pro-choice. And Bobby Kennedy had a dilemma because they're a Catholic family. They wanted to get Catholic votes. So I write about this meeting they had in 1964. 
in a long-forgotten meeting at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport on a hot summer day in 64, the Kennedy family and their advisors and allies were coached by leading theologians and Catholic college professors to accept and promote abortion with a clear conscience. Albert Johnson, a former Jesuit, now he's a bioethics professor, recalled how this happened. In 1964, Jesuit priest Father Joseph Fuchs, renowned Catholic moral theologian and a professor at the Gregorian University in Rome, was among the guest faculty of an ethics course I was teaching at the summer session at U University of San Francisco, my husband's alma mater. Walking across campus one morning, Father Fuchs hailed me and told me that he had received a phone call inviting him to join several other leading theologians in a meeting with Senator Ted Kennedy and the Kennedy family in Hyannisport. Robert Kennedy was running for the New York Senate seat, and the Kennedy family and their political advisors wished to discuss the position that a Catholic politician should take on abortion. Two days later, the distinguished German theologian and I, the American novice, this is Albert Johnson, um, traveled to Cape Cod to join Catholic theologians, Father Robert Drinan, then the dean of Boston Law School, Father Richard McCormick, Father Charles Curran, and a bishop whose name I do not recall, our I think he did recall, but he didn't want to say, our colloquium at Hyannisport was influenced by Jesuit Father John Courtney Murray's position and reached the conclusion that Catholic politicians in a democratic polity might advocate legal restrictions on abortion, but in so doing might tolerate legislation that would permit abortion if political efforts to repress this moral error led to greater perils to social peace and order. This position, which of course is much more nuanced than that, seems to have informed the politics of the Kennedys. And it was from that meeting that a lot of Catholic politicians got permission to support abortion, to support laws that would allow abortion, even while remaining personally opposed. And a lot of Catholic politicians still do that, but some of them don't even bother. Like Mario Cuomo, who is the governor of um, New York, his son now. Mario Cuomo is famous for going, um, for talking about how he was personally opposed but would support abortion. Now his son, Andrew, he doesn't even bother with the personally opposed. He's just like abortion on demand. So it just grew out of that. Sadly, a lot more Democrats and a lot more Catholics, and I document the voting records of Catholics. That's my, that's my favorite kind of article to do because I want to embarrass them, although I don't think they're capable of being embarrassed, even when I quote them when they were pro-life or when I publish their voting records. Unfortunately, I think they're beyond being embarrassed. But the politics, they color everything. A lot of people think that the Supreme Court is like high on a hill and they, they're not tainted by politics. Well, I'm here to tell you they're not, and our next speaker will, will get into this more. He knows a lot more about Roe v. Wade than I do. But I begin my book with Justice Blackman. His daughter, Sally, takes credit for Roe v. Wade. I don't know if you know that, but Sally talked about how she influenced her father's decision. She wrote a book about this. Sally Blackman, an abortion rights activist and daughter of Justice Harry Blackman, who authored Roe v. Wade, recounts how personal considerations entered into her father's thinking on the matter. She recalls that he often discussed the broad issues involved in his cases around the dinner table. 
and says that he really struggled with Roe v. Wade. At one point, when the family was in the middle of a meal together, Justice Blackman asked Sally and her two sisters how they thought the case should be decided. I mean, most of you thought it was the Constitution that would have something to do with this. No, not so much. No, the dinner. They said they favored the plaintiff. Appearing to take partial credit for the historic Supreme Court decision, Sally suggests that her father was certainly influenced by his three daughters and an outspoken independent wife. And although Justice Blackmun's written decision cites a right to privacy that he found in the 14th Amendment in the Constitution, his daughter maintains that he also viewed Roe as an opportunity to give women rights that will emancipate them. Noting that her father had spent nine years working as general counsel at the Mayo Clinic, Sally Blackman concluded that this period of his life gave him the opportunity to see firsthand the after effects of botched illegal abortion. I don't know how much he saw as a lawyer. I don't think he saw any of it. But it was politically expedient at the time uh, when Roe v. Wade was, all those Democratic politicians are moving, the country was moving, lots of other states had legal abortion. New York was always, was performing abortion for women from all over the country who were flying in with abortion packages. You could get, it was like a tour package. They had travel agents that set these abortion packages up. So you'd fly up from Georgia, check into a hotel that the abortion provider would find for you, bring you to the abortion facility in New York, and get a legal abortion. So it was like a big moneymaker. In fact, Larry later wasn't thrilled that the whole country was going to have abortion pretty soon because he saw it as competition. Sadly, by 1992, the whole Democratic Party was pretty much, and those of you from Pennsylvania, you had a very courageous man, Bob Casey, at the 1992 Democratic National Convention who was not even allowed to address the delegates because of his pro-life stance. Um, Nat Hentoff, who's a pro-life atheist, one of my favorite people, he wrote, um, I mean, it's hard to believe, I know, an atheist, but he is, he's a strong pro-life person. But he wrote about Casey, and he said, Casey had the misfortune of being present during the great shift in the Democratic Party. At the 1992 convention, um, Casey told me he had expected, in light of his policy accomplishments, to be a speaker or maybe even keynote. But not only was he not appointed to the keynote spoke, uh, speaker position, Casey told Hentoff that he and his Pennsylvania delegation were exiled to the farthest reaches of Madison Square Garden in New York. It did not matter that under his leadership, state contracts to minority and women-owned firms in Pennsylvania had increased more than 1,500% or that he had appointed more female cabinet members than any other Democrat. What he was told by Ron Brown, the chief convention organizer, was, your views are out of line with those of most Americans. Um, he was treated shabbily. His son now is a senator and doesn't stand the way his father did, unfortunately. So politics, as you can see, ugly, um, became ugly. Right now, we're in the midst of a mandate here on this campus. We have the Democratic Party to thank for that, uh, President Obama, and the HHS mandate. And so I write a lot about that, and not without great sorrow, because the HHS mandate also covers abortion. It pays for abortion. And that's a very political thing. The next area I look at is race. This is even sadder than the politics. 
because there's a whole race, African-Americans, who are being obliterated. Um, nationally, 43% of all black women's pregnancies end in abortion. But if you study the states that I study, like New York, I look at New York by zip code, and um, it's even worse. There are some zip codes in New York that have very low abortion rates, like lower Manhattan, um, the wealthy areas, the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side. But if you look at the zip codes like Bed-Stuy, um, the Bronx, Queens, parts of Queens, parts of Brooklyn, the non-wealthy parts, you have abortion rates of over 63% in those parts of the city, which means you know, 63% of all pregnancies of African-American women end in abortion. That's almost two-thirds of all pregnancies of black women. Um, and so I study that. I interview people who are trying to change that. Reverend Johnny Hunter, he has an organization called Blacks for Life. He writes that abortion is racism in its ugliest form. Um, because of some very suave planning by abortion supporters and providers, abortionists have eliminated more African-American children than the KKK ever lynched. He's very courageous and says things like that. 200 years ago, our African-American heritage was robbed by a group of elitist individuals who intentionally kept us ignorant concerning the devastating effects of slavery. Today, we're being robbed by elitist individuals who have intentionally kept us ignorant concerning the devastating effect of abortion on our race. Um, Reverend Clenard Childress is another uh, courageous man of Montclair, New Jersey. He's president of Life Education and Research Network, uh, the nation's largest African-American evangelical pro-life group. He hopes to reduce the number of African-American abortions by trying to proclaim the message of life. And they have made a difference. And abortion has gone down, not so much in the African-American community, unfortunately. That's the sad part. Margaret Sanger, who is like the mother of abortion, um, she made it her she really made it her goal to obliterate poor people, um, immigrants and blacks. She had something called the Negro Project. And she must be so proud today because her legacy is still being fulfilled in these zip codes in New York City, where two thirds of all black babies are being killed in the womb. So um, she had something, she also wrote something the rising tide of color against the white race. Um, in her book, The Pivot of Civilization, she's very critical of charity. She doesn't want any charity. She's a Darwinian. My criticism of charity is not directed at the failure of philanthropy, but rather at its success. <laughs> That's what she writes. Charity is too successful. You know, poor people are living. That's really bad for her. She wanted, I mean, she was a Malthusian, so wanted to, you know, lessen the population. So her, the dark side of her legacy lives today in the heavy marketing of abortion in the African-American community. Um, if you, I'm in New York every week, and so I, I actually see the marketing, billboards, um, pink things, you know, like pink water bottles with Planned Parenthood on them, pens and scarves and... You wouldn't believe. It's very subtle, but they give a lot of free stuff out, and it's always pink. 
like a nice color, um, bothers me. <laughs> the third area I look at is the economics. And I'm, uh, the last article I just wrote was on the stem cell organ harvesting issue. But, you know, most people were surprised about that. But I titled my article, Greed Has Always Driven the Abortion Industry. And I write about 100 years ago, because I'm interested in the history of abortion. More than a century ago, abortion created such tremendous wealth for providers. And that continues today as yet another shocking video has been released showing another Planned Parenthood official discussing the sale of body parts. Although this news does not seem to disturb many on the pro-choice side, there was a time when most believed that ending the life of an unborn child was so egregious an offense against nature that it deserved the harshest penalties. It was an era when even the New York Times, you know, the pro-choice New York Times, found the practice so abhorrent that their editorial staff responded to the 1878 death of Madame Restel, an infamous abortionist, with the statement that her passing was a fitting end to an odious career. Could you imagine if they wrote that about Cecile uh, Richardson's obituary? Well, she's not dead yet. But, I mean, could you imagine if they wrote that in about an abortion provider that died, a fitting end to an odious career? Well, they went on to talk about Madame Ristel. So I write about Madame Ristel in this article. Madame Ristel's death occurred during a time when she held sway over New York City's abortion industry, owning a network of abortion parlors throughout the city that stretched from her primary facility in a house on Chambers Street, if you know that part of the city, near the village, all the way across the river to Hoboken, New Jersey. She was joined in New York City's burgeoning abortion business by dozens of other abortionists who were luridly described in New York's Police Gazette as fiends who have made a business of professional murder and who have reaped the bloody harvest in quenching the immortal spark in thousands of the unknown. Could you imagine writing that today in a newspaper? The provision of abortion services was made into a personal fortune of more than a million dollars for Madame Ristel. She lived in a lavish Fifth Avenue brownstone described in the tabloids of the day as the mansion built on baby skulls. She shared the abortion profession with her husband, Charles Lohman, an ex-printer, who took the name Dr. Morisot and advertised himself as a doctor advocating early abortion with potions and powders. He specialized in creating abortifacients, which he stole for, sold for exorbitant prices. Um, Morisot was a brazen Barnum with an audacious sales technique. In addition to her husband's medicinals designed to eliminate the developing fetus, Ristel specialized in late-term abortion. Advertising herself as a female physician and professor of midwifery in the daily newspapers, the self-taught Ristel, with no medical training, was able to corner a growing abortion market by developing what some authors have suggested were friendly relationships with the police and the New York City politicians. So politicians have always been on the take with the abortion industry. With the delivery of abortion services was only a misdemeanor in the early 19th century, growing numbers of patient deaths because she wasn't an abortion provider, really. She wasn't a doctor. She was a murderer. She would find ways to kill the, the emerging child. Um, sometimes it killed the woman, often. 
So she was arrested and always fought her way out. As a late-term provider, she found herself on the wrong side of the law, especially when her female patients died, as often happened. She had no formal training, but the ever-resourceful abortionists always managed to find a way to escape without serious or lasting consequences. Even when arrested and sentenced to a one-year term on Blackwell's Island, she was able to use her financial resources and political connections to purchase excellent accommodations in prison, bringing her own feather bed, carpeting, easy chairs into the prison suite. Visiting hours were altered, so her husband was able to visit at will. So successful was she that the National Police Gazette reported that the abortion law actually had the effect of sweeping every rival from her path. So she championed, just like Larry Later didn't want Roe, didn't want it legalized because he made more money without competition. She liked abortion laws because they would keep away the competition because she was able to pay everybody off. She ruled the abortion empire for years. Um, to attempt to confront the culture of bribery and extortion, the New York Times editor used his newspaper to begin an anti-abortion crusade, which is so unbelievable to me. Beginning with the biblically referenced editorial in the New York Times, entitled The Least of These Little Ones, Jennings complained that the perpetration of infant murder is rank and smells to heaven. Why is there no hint of punishment? It seemed that in 1878, however, she and her husband weren't getting along too well, and her husband ended up dead. And she was being suspected for the murder. Um, it seemed like nothing could stop her in her sphere of influence. Yet Rostell's empire fell later that year when she was yet again arrested following a confrontation with Anthony Comstock. And after a brief stint in the tombs, and she was suspected of the murder of her husband, she posted bail and returned home to her mansion on Fifth Avenue. Making her way upstairs, Madame Restelle calmly settled back into a warm bath and then slit her own throat. While her death may have been, as the New York Times suggested, a fitting end to her odious career, it was just the beginning of an industry that continues today to provide great profits to all those involved. And that's what I do. I study the profits, where the money comes from, and who gets paid. And it's the Democratic Party. Planned Parenthood's not given money to Republicans or anybody pro-life. The last area I look at is the church. And that's probably the most important. I'm very interested in the role that the Catholic Church plays, both in promoting not as an institution, but groups that call themselves Catholics promote abortion. Groups like Catholics for Choice, it's really just a letterhead. They don't really have any real members, but it's run by former Catholics. It was started by a woman, who, Frances Kissling, who entered the convent and then came out quickly, um, but calls herself a former nun. She was there a couple of weeks. Um, she started this organization to try to convince people in the 80s that Catholics are not, you know, all in unison on forbidding abortion. We know that's not true. But that still goes on today. The Catholics for Choice is often quoted whenever they need a Catholic voice on an abortion dilemma or discussion. She's stepped down, but a guy named O'Brien is there ready to give the heresy that he uh, he's saying that the Catholic Church supports abortion. But he's joined by some new organizations that kind of worry me. 
Believe it or not, there's a group of nuns, the American Catholic nuns, a woman named Donna Quinn, who is a sister, who is a pro-choice sister. I know, that's hard to believe. She not only is a pro-choice nun, but she's a pro-choice nun who's a clinic escort at Planned Parenthood. I know. If you want to look her up, Donna Quinn, she horrifies me. She just horrifies me. Um, and the group is a dissident group. Yes. I don't know how all these politicians not excommunicated. She's an active nun. There are several nuns that I know that are pro-choice. I worked with many of them at the University of San Diego. They promote internships, and, and that's what we're I'm talking about. My last group here at the church, Catholic colleges are a problem, not this one. That's why I'm here. Uh, one of the reasons I left the University of San Diego was because I was chair of the department for many years. No one really wants that job, so I was happy to do it because I could sort of control about where internships were. I didn't really want people doing internships in pro-gay marriage organizations or Planned Parenthood. But when I came back from sabbatical, I found out that the department was allowing students to get course credit for being clinic escorts at Planned Parenthood, and I was going to have to supervise them. And I said, no, I don't think so. Um, and that was really kind of my downfall there. I Things weren't good anymore. I had a good relationship with my colleagues, but the department started to change. It became much more feminist. It became much more liberal. And I became the deviant of the department. By the time I got back from sabbatical and I had already had the argument about Planned Parenthood, I was moved to a, my office was taken away. I was moved to an office that used to be like a cleaning closet. Um, but they did take all the cleaning supplies out. Um, life became very difficult. And I just, they knew I would leave, and I did. Even though I had tenure, had been there for 15 years. Because Catholic colleges, for the most part, support abortion. I'm sorry to say. There are 230 Catholic colleges, and one of my books is called The Politics of Catholic Higher Education. And in that book, I have two chapters on honoring pro-choice speakers on Catholic campuses, on um, internships. Right now with the stem cell thing, this organ harvesting, lots of Catholic law schools are sending lawyers to help defend Planned Parenthood. Um, there's a group called law school, uh, Catholic Law Students for Reproductive Justice, and there's a lot of Catholic law schools that are part of that. Um, Unfortunately, so I think I should stop now because I don't want to go on too much longer. I want to make sure you have time for questions. And I've hit all my four areas that I study. Um, I'm going to continue this work, uh, this whole Planned Parenthood thing. I'm right in the middle right now of writing, you know, the celebration of abortion because that's what we're seeing now. And they have to sell it because. Nobody really wants to buy it, so you have to be sold all the time. And that's why you hire people like Katie Couric, who's so cute and so bubbly and so nice, and she's touring an abortion facility saying good things about it. So that's what I'm writing about right now. Three major justifications or false narratives, if you will. 
the first one, the old common law accepted and did not prohibit procured abortion. Revisionist history, false. All right. Two, as of the last half of the 20th century, procured abortion is now safer than childbirth for the mother. Three, prior to Roe and Doe, I think the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 5,000 to 10,000 women a year died from illegal abortions in the United States. Perhaps you've heard this figure. It's still being used today. It's false. So that's what I'm addressing here. And there's a lot of other things. In fact, you know, I've, I've studied these cases. I've read articles and, you know, over many years. And every way you look at it, um, the whole abortion thing and the legal justice, they're all false and, and uh, misleading. <clears throat> all right. Let's start with the um, second false justification, the one about uh, procured abortion, uh, safer than childbirth for the mother, because it's the most difficult one. I mean, it's about, what it's really about is comparing maternal mortality rates uh, due to childbirth and maternal mortality rates due to procured, procured abortion. But the problem is it's not currently possible to accurately compare the two because we don't have good data, especially on uh, ma maternal mortality due to illegal abortion, due to abortion. They're all legal now, so slip of the tongue there when I said illegal abortion. All right. However, and this is a point that um, I think is not made enough, but if you factor in the death of the unborn child, which typically in these debates never even comes up as to maternal mortality rates, and you look at the dramatically increased rates of suicide of mothers who've had abortions, then you can clearly see that procured abortion is less safe uh, than childbirth for the mother. You know, so, <clears throat> I mean, we know it's false, but it is difficult to prove. We don't have the data. The, the uh, moving on here, um, I, I want to um, uh, show you a, a couple of uh, recent books where you'll find this information. And so in many ways, I'm just doing a book report here tonight. <clears throat> yeah. Show and tell. I'm hoping that if you see these books, maybe you'll read them. Maybe you'll purchase them there. They are available, I'm sure. Uh, if not, not, maybe not in the bookstore here, but uh, Amazon or, yeah. And one is a, a book that came out just in the past year to Abuse of Discretion by Clark Forsyth. And <clears throat> this uh, book um, gives you a lot of information 
and shows how the, the falsity to uh, uh, the two justifications, two and three, about uh, procured abortion being safer than childbirth and the whole five to 10,000 a year dying, right, you know, immediately prior to Roe versus Wade and that decision by the Supreme Court. <clears throat> Another book, which, <clears throat> gee, I wish this were more recognized and slowly is being recognized as a book by Joseph Della Pena called Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History. This is quite the work. Now, it was published in 2006, an academic work by the uh, uh, I don't know, North Carolina Press or South, something like that. But uh, uh, Forsyth, it, it's the most cited book by Forsyth in his hundreds of footnotes per chapter. This, this book <clears throat> is uh, very powerful, very difficult to read, very powerful. Uh, it's not a cheap book, unfortunately. It's not available in paperback. It's $100 at least. And uh, this is the library's copy. If you've been trying to get this from the library, you can't get it because I checked it out and still have it, <laughs> all right? But I'll return it soon. Maybe I can get a copy of this for Christmas. Uh, but <clears throat> it's $100, yeah. Those, those two books is where most of the information um, in my little talk here tonight is from, those, those particular texts. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> Uh, Della Pena, this book is very powerful because uh, everybody thinks he's Catholic. Joseph Della Pena, law professor, Vill Villanova Law School. In fact, some pro-abortion authors have called him a Catholic in articles trying to counter, you know, counter-attacking his, his uh, research. Truth is, he's not Catholic at all. He's a lapsed Unitarian. In fact, he's for abortion up to eight weeks until brain activity or something like that is detectable. All right. He started writing on abortion, on the legal history of abortion, uh, shortly after the Roe versus Wade decision and Doe v. Bolton in 73 because he knew it was false. And he wanted to document it. So you can go out there and search online and find a number of articles by Della Pena uh, from 73 on. And I think in 2006, he, he just uh, uh, you know, culminated all his research and, and wrote this book, which is uh, 1,300 pages of very dense text. Uh, with hundreds of footnotes, I mean, but it is the work. It's the best thing I've ever read about. Um, and he touches not only on, uh, you know, abortion, legal history, but other aspects as well. Now, the other book, Forsyth, <clears throat> he's senior counsel for the American, uh, Americans United for Life, which is probably the oldest pro-life organization next to the church, uh, out in Chicago, I believe. And, and he's been involved for decades in, with various uh, Supreme Court uh, cases and federal and state cases as well. All right, uh, <clears throat> moving on to, uh, for back to the false justifications that are crucial to provide some kind of uh, appearance of, of uh, legal reasoning, in, you know, in these two cases uh, in 73. One, the common law, um, not really being a, 
uh, prohibiting procured abortion. Uh, <clears throat> what this does, if, if you get that falsity out there, then it makes it easy to turn and focus uh, on the statutes that were prohibiting abortion that were put on the books in the 1800s. These statutes uh, prohibited procured abortion, and they were put on the books mid to late 1800s by Protestant legislatures uh, at the behest of the American Medical Association. Read about the life of Horatio Robinson Storer. You'll be fascinated. You can Google it online. He was an obstetrician, graduate of Harvard Medical School. He also was a Unitarian, I noticed, and became a Presbyterian, and finally became a Catholic because he was so impressed with the church's teaching. Um, the purpose of these statutes um, from the 1800s, I mean, once you've dispensed with and you come up with a revisionist history on the common law, okay, then you only have to knock down the statutes. Huh? Well, the purpose of these statutes enacted in all 50 states at the behest of the American Medical Association was to legally protect the life of the unborn child, protect the mothers as well from the grave, grave harm and often death, uh, you know, due to uh, procured abortion or induced abortion, especially during this time, and also to update the old common law with, new, with the new information about fetal development showing that human life begins at conception, fertilization, period. These abortion statutes of the late 1800s, they went after the abortionists, not the mothers. All right? In fact, there were rules of evidence that required, uh, even with, the com with just the common law, that um, you not charge uh, and go after uh, the mother. It actually caused a problem with uh, convicting the abortionist. So <clears throat> um, these statutes were aimed at the abortionists with criminal sanctions. As with the common law, the history of these statutes was falsified by revisionist authors, and we're talking law professors, namely uh, Cyril Means, who was a law professor, I forget where, and, now this is even more significant in my mind, general counsel for the National Abortion Rights Action League, NARAL. All right? <clears throat> so his article, which was very influential, heavily cited by the Supreme Court, was biased. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Means influential article falsified these statutes by claiming that the statutes were only intended to protect the mother because pro pro procured abortion was so dangerous at, at this time in history of the 1800s. It was false. They were designed to protect the unborn child, uh, a legal protection, um, a teaching, a teaching as well, um, and to get rid of the uh, old quickening distinctions and other, other problems that, part of the old, that had grown up and developed as part of the common law over the centuries in England and the U.S. 
<clears throat> Moving to two now, and that's the justification, false justification about abortion being safer than childbirth. If procured abortion is now safer than childbirth for the mother, the Supreme Court can now, and this is thinking of the justices, can now find, I'd say invent, a fundamental right to procured abortion in the U.S. Constitution. Of course, it's implied, there's nothing there explicitly at all, based on the so-called right to privacy or personal liberty. <clears throat> the true fundamental right, of course, is our founding principle. All men, male and female, are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and this pursuit of happiness. Of course, that's from the Declaration, our founding document with the founding principle, which cannot be amended like the Constitution can. And um, you know, that's very much a, a natural law statement from our founding fathers. All right, <clears throat> as to three, as to three, that was the uh, false claim, five to 10,000 women a year die from illegal abortions in the U.S. This is right immediately prior to Roe versus Wade. Well, no books necessary there. You can easily find that that's a falsehood. Uh, Bernard Nathanson, uh, God rest his soul, who became a uh, uh, an ardent pro-lifer uh, uh, admitted they just made it up. They just made it up. It was convenient. It worked. And it became a mantra used by the press and, and others. Even Walter Cronkite right, fell for it in Sebia. All right. Well, <clears throat> uh, uh, the best figures we have, uh, uh, you know, as far as uh, the number of women who died annually in the U.S. Uh, from... Um, Illegal abortions, uh, the real, in other words, the real annual maternal mortality rate for women is, was, is pro appears to be in the range of 100 and 250, not 10, not 5,000, yeah. In fact, that figure, based from government statistics, is for both uh, mothers who died for, uh, from complications due to childbirth as well as due to complications of abortion. So those, that, that, that number is both combined. Today, uh, the current numbers, I believe, are in the 10 to 20 range. All right? And, and what, of course, has lowered um, the, the risks of death from one childbirth as well as abortion is the technology and um, antibiotics and uh, techniques, uh, not to mention dilation and curatage, the curette, all these things. <clears throat> pardon me, developed since the 1940s. And so we've seen maternal mortality rates take a big drop starting in the 40s and, and uh, come down to very low levels in the 60s, and it continues. All right. <clears throat> Why did the Supreme Court pick these cases? Now, this is um, more of a procedural aspect both Roe and Doe are contrived cases by pro-abortion activists, lawyers, and judges. The majority opinions of both cases were issued on the same day, January 2273, and they were intended to be read together as one. Why Roe? Okay. Roe involved the Texas abortion statute, which was the typical abortion statute 
that was on the books since the late 1800s. And it was the typical abortion statute you, you, you find, actually we'll still find, about, in about half of the states. All right, this, uh, is, this statute from the 1800s prohibits procured abortion except when the life of the mother is at stake. Okay, that's another common misunderstanding or myth about these abortion statutes. They prohibited all abortions. No, they had an exception for the life of the mother. Why, uh, why Doe, which was the companion case, it involved the uh, Georgia abortion statute, which was uh, a newly reformed statute based on the American uh, Law Institute's model abortion statute put out there by esteemed law professors in the 1960s, I believe. And by the late 1960s, about half of the U.S. states had adopted the reform statutes of this sort. Now, the, the Georgia statute and about half of the other states uh, uh, allowed for abortion, um, prohibited abortion except for life of the mother, health of the mother, rape, incest, you know, that, those, those what we call the tough cases. But to this day, you look at the tough cases, we're talking about a one half of 1% of all abortions. All right. <clears throat> the US, U.S. Supreme Court took and decided these abortion cases in order to flatten all the state abortion statutes in all 50 states overnight. Uh, Roe and Doe legalized abortion on demand and without apology. That the, that's a sign you see commonly. In a, uh, abortion on demand without apology, right? <clears throat> well, they, a, a lot of pro-abortion activists were shocked as well the morning after January because they were, they were shocked as to how the Supreme Court delivered more than what they were hoping for. All right. <clears throat> Here's a little known fact which the Forsyth, uh, Forsyth book, the Forsyth book uh, brings to light. And I've also read it in a few other articles as well, public discourse articles. Um, by 1970, and this, this puts the lie to the myth that the pro-life movement didn't start until after Rovers, Roe and Doe. Truth is it was alive and well and successful. And here's some, here's some indication of that. <clears throat> By 1970, the pro-life pro attorneys and advocates had successfully halted the pro-abortion legislative and court victories of the late 1960s. There were no pro-abortion legislative or even, and maybe not even court victories, during 1971 and 1972. In fact, during this time, New York's permissive abortion on demand statute, which Ann referenced, um, was repealed by the Senate, New York Senate, only to be vetoed by Governor Nelson Rockefeller. That's a name from the past, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, who I believe was Republican, but of course a pro-abortion um, Republican. Yeah, so much has changed here with the political parties. You used to have a lot more, um, you know, uh, Republicans who were pro-abortion. You had in the past, more Democrats who are pro-life, but over the decades, especially with the party platforms, um, you know, there's, you have, uh, well, people, I guess, switching sides, and, and um, there's, you know, abortion really has poisoned the well here. 
and, and I'm, <clears throat> those aren't my words, but some articles I've read and, um, uh, of you know political debate here because it, it 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 seeps in and, and involves. Well, and, and anyhow, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Getting back to my point here is that the pro-life movement was alive and well before uh, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Um, there was no pro-abortion legislative victories, 71, 72. In fact, uh, yeah, Nelson Rockefeller's veto. But in other words, the Supreme Court used Roe and Doe to reverse the pro-life victories of the early 70s and also took the issue of, of procured abor abortion um, uh, away from the stage, which, of course, is where, as a legal matter, it's supposed to be. So <clears throat> all the progress made in 71 and 72 got effectively overturned uh, by these two decisions overnight. And not only that, uh, you know, they were hamstrung, meaning the pro-life uh, uh, attorneys and advocates were hamstrung for decades. And in fact, um, little, no progress was, was possible until you had a... Uh, a Supreme Court decision in 1992 involving the pro-life governor of Pennsylvania, um, <clears throat> um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that case is a mixed bag. There you see um, less discussion of the right to privacy and sort of a quiet refounding re of the uh, so-called right to abortion on liberty. Uh, but at the same time, the Supreme Court did allow for some incremental pro-life regulations around the edges, so to speak. And that's where your parental notification, um, sonogram, other types of requirements, uh, waiting periods, um, and the pro-life um, advocates have, have made a good use of that. In the past 15 years, we've seen the, 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 the uh, abortion, uh, the rate of abortion annually de decrease by about 30% nationwide. Uh, but when you look at the Midwestern states and Southern states, the Bible Belt, the more conservative states, it's more like 50 to 80 percent. And um, um, a number of authors, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, one particular sociologist, I believe he is, uh, New, um, Michael New, uh, his, I think, is the best uh, research showing that the credit goes to these new incremental pro-life laws on the books. They do work. And so the pro-life movement, <clears throat> which has been working in this area, has been successful, has made progress. Don't believe the lie. And you typically hear it at presidential election cycles. So next year you'll hear it, that the pro-life movement is a failure. It's not. It's, it's, it's success continues. And in fact, success has been growing over the past um, 15 years. All right. <clears throat> Another procedural aspect, and then I'll quit here and take questions because I'm assuming it's, what time is it? 10 after, all right. <clears throat> these two, any way you'd look at these cases, they should have never been heard. They should have been thrown out. They should have never been decided. Uh, there's nothing right about these cases. They were contrived from the start, uh, run up through the courts, Supreme Court took these cases directly from the trial court, which was a federal district court in Texas, federal district court in Georgia. <clears throat> Why did they take these cases? Because they wanted to use them. 
stop the pro-life uh, victories and legislative uh, matters uh, that was happening in you know the prior two years. There are virtually no records. What I mean by that is they're the pleadings and that's it. All right. If if you're a Supreme Court, state or federal, you should be making decisions based on the most robust record you can find from a court case. Right? You want you want lots of um, expert testimony, lots of facts brought out. Um, you know that's the way our adversarial system works. Right? The parties with their attorneys, they marshal the facts to best represent their side. They get the expert witnesses, the evidence, you name it. They bring it forth, <clears throat> put it before the judge, before the jury, and let them decide. And it works very well. That didn't happen here. All right? There was virtually no record, just pleadings, uh, no facts to speak of. Uh, the plaintiffs never appeared in court. The plaintiffs were... Uh, true identity was hidden by the very names, right? And uh, no expert testimony, just the pleadings. Very poor record. Uh, and, uh, which are reasons why the court shouldn't have taken these cases. Another little known fact talked about in the Forsyth book is that <clears throat> during this time, um, this is uh, 1970, I think, um, the court was down, two justices. Two of them had retired due to ill health and died within a year. Um, and um, the process was going on to appoint new ones and all that. And so Chief Justice Warren Berger created a commission, a special little commission within the justices. Um, <clears throat> and I think there were three or four justices on this little committee. I should call it a committee. They were supposed to screen cases and only take non-controversial cases during this time, because they were down two justices. Well, they blew it here. Uh, this is one thing that's been revealed by, in Blackman's private papers, which became public in, uh, in 2004, um, five years after a Supreme Court Justice's death. These private papers, you can be, researchers can have at them. And um, uh, apparently there were <clears throat> notes in his papers as well as um, some some um, discussions he had with folks in the 80s and the 90s where he, he revealed that, yeah, we, we thought, you know, <laughs> well, he claimed that they thought they were taking this, these two cases because they were just interested in um, criminal procedure aspect of these cases. And it gets rather complicated, but to make a long story short, he I, I don't know that I buy the claim. I, I sort of think, you know, they picked these two cases because they saw the opportunity, and these two cases with very little facts allowed them to do what they wanted to do, which was results-oriented jurisprudence to flatten all of the state laws and the prohibitions on abortion. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.